Ada Limon is the author of six books of poetry, including The Carrying, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Poetry. Her book, Bright Dead Things, was nominated for the National Book Award, the National Book Critics Circle Award, and the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award. Her work has been supported most recently by a Guggenheim Fellowship. She grew up in Sonoma, California, and now lives in Lexington, Kentucky, where she writes, teaches remotely, and hosts the critically acclaimed poetry podcast, The Slowdown. Her new book of poetry, The Hurting Kind, is forthcoming from Millweed Editions in May 2022. Ada Limon, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. The poem that I has been coming to me lately, uh, primarily because of the sort of where we are right now, as a globe, as a universe, as a species. And I wonder sometimes what it is to have hope or to even want to be where you are right now, despite the suffering that's all around you. And I think that's something that's a core uh, of my work, something that I'm always trying to work through and work with. Um, And so I call this poem sort of an apocalyptic love poem. Uh, It's called The Conditional. Say tomorrow doesn't come. Say the moon becomes an icy pit. Say the sweet gum tree is petrified. Say the sun's a foul black tire fire. Say the owl's eyes are pinpricks. Say the raccoon's a hot tar stain. Say the shirt's plastic ditch litter. Say the kitchen's a cow's corpse. Say we never get to see it. Bright future, stuck like a bum star, never coming close, never dazzling. Say we never meet her, never him. Say we spend our last moments staring at each other, hands knotted together, clutching the dog, watching the sky burn. Say it doesn't matter. Say that would be enough. Say You'd still want this, us, alive, right here, feeling lucky. It really compresses so many, and distills, I should say, so many of uh, the sense of hope or the fragility of hope, too. Like, in, like we have to hold fast to reality as well and mm-hmm. not live in a dream, but it says that quite beautifully. And when did you write this poem? This poem was written in, I think, in 2014. So it was written quite a while ago, and yet it speaks to this moment. I think it was written for me when I was having a real moment of reckoning, not that I hadn't had it earlier, but where I was doing some deep reading about the climate crisis and really reckoning with myself with where we were and what was happening, what the truth was. And I felt like it was so easy to slip down into a darkness, into a sort of numbness. And I didn't think that that numbness and darkness could be useful. Um, And so I thought, how can I be useful in this this moment? How can I come back to myself? Um, And this poem came out of that, which is sort of like, you know, say all the dark things come true, say all of that is true. Um, What is it to return to this moment, to this present moment? Um, I think so often in any kind of teachings uh, of, you know, the Buddha or of any, any kind of work on the mat, as we say, when you're trying to be present, I think that so often we get caught up in this idea of like, oh, this present moment, this present moment. And we have an idea of what it is, but I don't really think we have an idea of it until we force ourselves to come up against the opposite, which is the past or the future. Um, And in this case, I played with the future, um, which then could unravel and bring me back into the present. It's almost impossible for us to imagine certain futures like if you're talking about our own extinction or you know the possibility of just we're we're here but a possibility of not being Mm -hmm. and everything that we take for granted and Mm -hmm. you know I think also you um, touch on you know the grace of animals and that and something that we're thinking about a lot as much as this 
program is about like educating through conversation. And I do feel sometimes frustrated at myself, even (laughs) the the amount of talking that is done about these issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, you must think about this too. How, how do we use our skills and maybe how do we put aside our skills when we're faced with our extinction? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's really an important thing to consider because what I think the danger is when we are faced with reality and if we want to be clear-eyed and intelligent and look at the science and understand really what is happening to our planet i think the danger in that sort of pulling in of that information and absorbing it is to fall down the well and what happens if we all just give up right i mean we're sort of seeing that on some levels where people are saying, well, it's all going to burn anyway. So why does it matter? Right? Like that nihilistic thinking feels very dangerous to me. And so I always want to bring it back to like, what is it to hold scary, frightening, you know, even overwhelmingly terrifying thoughts within us, but then also have some seed of hopefulness, some seed of acceptance and surrender to that there can be beauty and maybe there's even more beauty now as we see it shifting and changing and maybe slipping away from us yes and loss is also a subject of uh, a number of your poems knowing how to appreciate what's precious in terms of what we can learn from animals as you touched on in your poem it's mysterious to me that ways that animals communicate their instinct really is something we're losing you know when you get inspiration for your poetry does it overtake you is it an act of like faith of just following the the music that you're listening to yeah I think um that's a great question thank you for that I feel that I'm oftentimes curious about something it's something I need to interrogate within myself Sometimes it begins with a sound or music or image. Sometimes it's literally, it's a feeling and like, what is this that I can't name? And I begin there. And, you know, it's very rarely an idea as much as it's like a bodily sensation or an image or a sound or something that's entering through the ear or the eye. Um, And that's when I start to go, okay, what is this, you know, what is this, um, obstacle kind of, you know, or what is this thing that I'm curious about? And then as I can kind of go into it, I start to find the music in it. And so that's, it's being, it's being interrogated, not just by the questioning of language, but also the questioning that space and breath allows that poetry offers, right? That anytime you have the azura or the line break or the stanza break, all of that is going to offer that breath And so I think that one of the reasons I love poetry and it allows me to kind of figure out something or deeply question something is because it allows space for breath and because it allows space for an unknowing and mystery, as opposed to I'm going to sit down and I'm going to solve this thing. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to name it and therefore be healed. I think instead it's like, oh, what I'm going to understand is that this is what it is to be human. This is what it is to be complex, to have capacity for many things, to be able to both absorb and release in the same space of a page. And that is really interesting to me because it feels like instead of creating something that sort of wraps things up or is sort of like, oh, this is, you know, this is going to be some sort of beautiful gem that makes us all feel good. I'm much more interested in what it is to have that mystery take place within there and have that sense of unknowing, have that sense of solace in the making and in the mess, as opposed to in the answers. And do you have a a poem that's about that process and that creative spark or what, you know, when something overtakes you? there's moments in my work where I've realized I'm trying to get at something 
And then instead of trying to find an answer, I think I ask more questions. Um, and I think that is uh, very much in the poem, um, The Vulture and the Body, which has to do with when I was, for a while we were trying to figure out if we wanted to have a child um, to bring someone into this world. Um, and then we decided that we did. And then uh, I found out that I couldn't have a child. Um, and so this is in the middle of fertility treatments and this kind of, and I, again, it was sort of a, a feeling within me that how do I, how do I pace these things together in a way that makes sense in my mind? Um, and of course, the only way I could do that was through language. Um, this is the vulture and the body. On my way to the fertility clinic, I pass five dead animals. First, a raccoon with all four paws to the sky, like he's gonna catch whatever bullshit loads falls on him next. Then a grown coyote, his golden furred body soft against the white cement lip of the traffic barrier, trickster no longer, an eye closed to what's coming. Close to the water tower that says Florencio, which means I'm near Cincinnati, but still in the bluegrass state and close to my exit, I see three dead deer, all staggered, but together. And I realize as I speed past in my death machine that they are a family. I say something to myself between a prayer and a curse. How dare we live on this earth? I want to tell my doctor how we all hold a duality in our minds, futures entirely different, footloose or forged. I want to tell him how lately it's enough to be reminded that my body is not just my body, but that I'm made of old stars, and so's he. And that last Tuesday, I sat alone in the car by the post office and just was for a whole hour no one knowing how to find me until I got out the sound of the car door shutting like a gun and mailed letters, all of them saying, thank you. But in the clinic, the sonogram wand showing my follicles, he asks if I have any questions and says, things are getting exciting. I wanna say, but what about all the dead animals? But he goes quicksilver and I'm left to pull my panties up like a big girl. Some days there is a violent sister inside of me and a red ladder that wants to go elsewhere. I drive home on the other side of the road going south now. The white coat has said I'm ready and I watch as a vulture crosses over me heading toward the carcasses I haven't properly mourned or even forgiven. What if instead of carrying a child, I am supposed to carry grief? The great black scavenger flies parallel now, each of us speeding intently and driven toward what we've been taught to do with death. You know, it's very interesting, the idea that instead of carrying a child, carrying uh, grief or death, or, you know, it's often said about uh, writers or artists that our works are our children but I don't know if it's the same thing because you know when I do a painting like sometimes I don't even look at it afterwards I would be a very bad you know so I don't know if you you feel that same way of course you then perform your poetry so it's something that uh, returns mm -hmm. and so you know what it, how do you feel do you feel they are like children you know, I think that that's a great question. Again, I think that, um, I, I think it's, I think it's a ill-fated comparison. I don't think it works. Um, I used to think that I used to think, oh yes. Like, and I would think I had, um, even sort of vague genders for my, for my, uh, my books. I think, oh, this is, this one has female energy and this one has male energy and all these things. But I think now I find it, um, I find that that parallel to, well, I guess for one of the things is that the work doesn't really have a chance to grow. Like you have a chance to grow, right? Afterwards. And people can bring 
to it what they want. And the work can have a life, definitely, without you. Definitely. A poem can mean something to someone in 20 years that never met me and has no idea why I wrote it, right? And they can bring themselves to that poem. But it's not functioning in a way that is necessarily like human growth. Whereas the artists themselves, like a child, right? We grow, we change, we shift. Um, and so I think one of the things I love about poetry is that there is a sense of both time and timelessness in it. So there is a sense that yes, it is of and written in a time, in a moment. Um, and there's that recognition of that appreciation of that moment. And yet at the same time, hopefully it speaks beyond its own um, era. Uh, nonetheless, I don't think it has that sort of that growth capability necessarily that humans can have. And how to deal with that kind of um, sadness or acceptance of the limitations of our body. I don't have a child either. For me, I didn't experience it as an unhappiness, um, but others do, you know, when they hear that. I think that's a great question. And I will say that we actually chose to stop fertility treatments and primarily because I felt like I didn't want to do it anymore. And I was really at peace with who I was, with who we were. And I, I just didn't need to go any further. And I felt at peace with that. And I think it's funny because for me, it also felt like making a decision. Um, and I think some people will say, oh, well, the decision was sort of made for you. And I think, no, I've made a decision, but I do think that there's a sort of trick of the mind where it makes me feel like I have made the, that decision. Uh, but I am very happy that we are child-free. Um, I think it is a sort of surprise miracle <laughs> to have um, to have a child-free life, especially as an artist, I think. Um, I don't think there's, a, there's just no through line. There's no way to compare what it is to have a child or what it is to not have a child. Um, but I will say that um, there has been a sense of abundance that has come to me that um, has felt like it has taken care of any need um, that I thought I might need uh, or might want with a child. So I don't think of it as grief anymore. I think at the time it did feel like a letting go, a release. And maybe there are moments where it comes back to me, you know, that possibility of like, oh, what, what would that be like? But I think for the most part, it feels like um, almost like a stolen freedom that uh, feels like almost wicked in its uh, delight. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly... Um relate to that I think that one can imagine not having children and then not being an artist you see and then that that might feel a little bit empty but being an artist it fills up your life and so in that way as while it wouldn't be exactly like we can't say a poem is a child or you know you, then you've given birth you're like <laughs> magnificently prolific in that terms <laughs> but but there is a sense of satisfaction or pride of having done. And I, and I relate to that when I hear parents, you know, speak about their children, that this is kind of, and also the way we mark our lives and time through mm -hmm. our works. So I was like, oh, that was that year that, you know, you wrote that book. That's a wonderful correlation because I do think of that with my books a hundred percent, but I think, oh, this is, you know, when I turned 30, the first book, when I turned, you know, like what it was to celebrate just recently my 15th anniversary of my first book etc and like what that feels like and so I do think time markers I think um and also just what it is to keep relating to the world in a way that feels like making things right as you know as an artist like there's something about that idea of to keep continually having a conversation with the world even if you are in an isolated space you know even if you have somewhat of a contained life, there's still a way of communicating and talking to the world. Um, and I feel like that part is, uh, it helps me flourish. So when you uh, look at the, your, you know, your earliest, I, which was the first book that you published? The first book was called Lucky Wreck. 
Oh, lucky wreck. So when you when you reflect on the poet you were then, and you know, and you're, I, I mean, you don't hide it. It's a lot of your work is autobiographical. It's very close. It's very honest, very intimate. And then you look at your poems now, like say more recently, you know, the caring or bright dead things. You know, how do you look back at your own evolution as a writer? I think I'm still there's still me um which is is, which is kind of wonderful and I'm not sure if you have that same experience with art making but that you can look at something and still see yourself in there and the person that you were that made that thing um I feel like for me I'm I'm always surprised at how much I'm still there in that early work um and how much that they actually do relate to each other I think if there's if there's a shift, I think the shift is to be um, to lean in towards the music, maybe a little bit more. And then also, I think that the questions have just gotten bigger. You know, as we age, I think that happens to our artwork where the questions just get bigger. Yes, certainly the tools at our disposal. Uh, it's interesting because they're, you know, within the germ of the writers or artists will become, and actually I write, it's my first love. So it's just like art is something that I know my hands know how to do, but writing is something that really absorbs me, um, like all of me. So I wanted to ask why you're drawn to poetry in particular, you know, why is that the medium for you? But uh, I think it's interesting because the germ of the writer or artist we will become when we're quite young is there and you can see it, but maybe we only have like, this limited vocabulary at that time. So we we can only say it one way. And then when we get older, we can say it lots of ways, but it's not always a good or bad thing because sometimes you can be so articulate that it's not raw. So what are your feelings about that? Like overworking and things like that? Yeah, I think that's very true. I think that there's something that is raw in that early work that feels like this is the only way to see this, right? Um, and I mean, it is something about youth where we get a little bit more, um, everything feels like this is the right way, this is the wrong way, or this person hurt me, therefore this person's bad. Um, and whereas as we grow older, we can start to think, oh, what is it to have some sympathy for that person that may, may like hurt me? What, what was that person going through? How is it that I can have you know, maybe some empathy for that situation, or maybe some empathy for my younger self. And instead of feeling like, oh, that shame and that deep shame of that moment or whatever it was, maybe there's places where I can let myself go and think, oh, you know what? It's all that's, that's human. And I feel like there's a lot of that as I get older, that I'm much more I'm less interested in that sort of something is wrong or right or, you know, good versus evil or that, that everything just feels a little bit more complex. And, um, and again, it's not really a good or bad thing, but it does make for a richness of subject matter because I feel like I can turn to anything and wonder about it. Um, I think in the beginning of my work, I felt like I could only return to myself. Um, it was the only thing I trusted enough to to look at deeply. Um, and while my work is still very autobiographical, it always has been, I find myself um, really, uh, again, leaning into, I'm able to have a little bit of a wider scope, I think. And I trust myself to maybe look deeply at the world, not just at sort of the inner world. So I think it's the moment that the outer and the inner are colliding and that has been happening more and more in my own work. That's interesting because so much of poetry has this kind of like a singular voice. I mean, of course, there's epic poetry. There's all sorts of big narrative poems, but there has that that, that power of intimacy. So like f- finding a way that where you can be like uh, have multiple voices or just have a little bit more be an act of listening as well as um, speaking Um it's it's lovely when you find that. I really appreciate how Ada discusses the way that collective healing and change really does begin with ourselves and our connection to ourselves. I've been thinking a lot lately about the um, spiritual concept of 
emptiness and it's a concept that's difficult to grasp because our idea of emptiness can seem really kind of cynical and um, detached from things if we say that life is empty or the present moment is empty that can kind of seem like a strange concept for many people but what it actually means is that because things are empty they're really full of everything and I think that part of what Ada is trying to express to all of us is how powerful it is to really feel interconnected with everything and that feeling of interconnection doesn't necessarily mean that we can carry everything on our shoulders or expect that we will be able to change the world in these big drastic ways as individuals but if we really felt that our very existence was an integral part of changing this world and healing this world if we all felt that way and we lived into that space in every moment in every part of our lives if we could all do that we would all feel really connected with everything and we would actually be able to change so much because we would all have this profound mindset about life and about the world and about what it means to be tethered just in our humanity and if we could all focus on shifting that consciousness within ourselves it would become a collective effort and actually change things on a collective scale and i also think that as a writer and a poet she's really speaking to the power of the imagination when it comes to imagining a future and i think like something i think about a lot is how living in that space of an imagined future i think some people maybe think of that as like escaping this reality or escaping the problems that are happening right now but i think like there's a way to balance being present to the suffering that's happening and the suffering that we're all feeling and not diminishing that while also living into the space of this imagined future in our existence and our actions like if we were to move through the world as if this connected healed future is already happening how would that shift how we're going about our lives and how would that shift how we interact with people and i think that that's something that we can all work on now, back to the interview. Brianna, what of uh, uh, Ada's poetry, how did it speak to you, you know? Um, thank you for asking. Hi, Ada. Thank you for letting me be here. I really appreciate getting to meet you. I really love your work, and I'm a huge fan. Personally, I really enjoy the theme of nature in your work, and that really resonates with me. I'm like trying to more explore my own connection with nature through writing and I was wondering what is your connection to the environment and how does that influence or inspire you? That's a wonderful question. Thank you so much for that, Brianna. I feel like for me, I don't think I could write without my attention and connection to the natural world. I feel like it's as important to me as people are in a lot of ways. And I think as we connect ourselves into our natural world, whether it's just the tree in front of our house, you know, even in an urban setting. I mean, I lived in New York for years and yet I was connected to every tree on my block. Um, and I think that that kind of helped me um, in a very overwhelmingly concrete space, uh, find that I, there was a still, you know, the place for living things. Um, and I, you know, I, I had a friend once who said that, you know, plants, Plants in a house say, this is a place for living things. And I think, yeah, this is a place for living things. So I think my connection for, with nature began very early as a child. It was where um, I felt like I could go if I, if I just needed to like, you know, lay my belly in the grass, watch the ants, whatever it was, just to have a moment of breath. It always was in nature. Um, and I think 
even in my mind when I return and I think, where do I want a poem to come from? I think of the creek that was by my house and like, oh, I'd go like to that creek and then I can, then something comes out of it. Um, and it almost feels like the, the natural world has, has given me some kind of song under, in my blood that, um, that, that the natural world wants me to, wants me to excavate, wants me to, to put into the world. So I feel like it's also an obligation in some ways to praise, to praise the natural world. I actually have a, a new book that, um, is going to be, uh, I can't really announce it yet because I haven't signed the contract, but I have a new book and it is very much about um, the natural world. Uh, and I feel like I've leaned into it even more. Um, and I think it's partly because the connectedness of all things is one of the very few things that gets me through it. It's like, oh, right, I am connected. I like to think, oh, I'm looking at these trees and I think, what does that tree think of me? Does that tree have any thoughts about me? Um, and I know it notices that it's got to witness something, right? It, it, even my, the chemical reaction under the roots, uh, whether I water or whether I don't, I mean, with, there's, there's, we have a symbiotic relationship. I think of the, the wonderful book, Braiding Sweetgrass by the native writer, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who has the wonderful quote, um, all flourishing is mutual. And she talks a lot about that idea of reciprocity. And I think that idea of reciprocity is stuck with me about that. It's not just what I can do, but also like absorbing like, oh, what is it to listen and watch? And what is the gift of that? And then what is it to, once I have received and been silenced and sat with images and sounds, what is it then to try to give something back? And what is it to maybe give it just to the natural world even? you know? So yeah, it's a huge part of my work. I really appreciate that, um, that question. We look forward to reading that. And I guess that that's a, it's a poetry collection, because I know also you're working on some nonfiction, um, or fiction. Uh, yeah, we, we interviewed not long ago, Suzanne Simard, who has that mother tree project, and she was telling, it was so fascinating, you know, these mycorrhizal networks underground, and the mother tree communicates and protects her own and protects other, you know, younger saplings and trees. And it's, it's really complex. I had no idea. I always suspected there was a kind of language of trees, but it's, it's incredible. Yeah. And the way that they can communicate with each other, if there's danger or chemical exposure or smoke, and then the way they can communicate with each other where, where water is and where, I mean, it's, it's a phenomenal, uh, trees are exceptional. You know, we think of them as the singular being. And in reality, there's so much underneath. I mean, it's not unlike what we think about humans where we pass someone and think we can sum them up in one little brief witty remark when in reality, underneath them as all those deep roots twisted in vines and connections, even us with our own ancestors, right? Our roots mean something. Our roots are like, that is, that is important. Um, and I think that there's so much there that we can, we can learn from even just getting to know an individual tree in your, you know, very singular walk or whatever it is that's around your neighborhood getting to know and witness that tree in the seasons it changes um, can alter you. Well, you're speaking about roots and I was wondering, and um, how do you, how does your uh, Mexican American heritage inspire you? How much do you feel a responsibility to mm -hmm. you know, address issues and your, mm -hmm. your heritage, your roots? Yeah, I think for me, um, my responsibility feels not to the wider world, but to my own ancestors. So I don't feel like, oh, I need to do this for someone else who needs to know about X, Y, and Z, right? Instead, what my responsibility feels like is like, okay, um, you know, when my grandfather crossed the border, he was an incredibly creative person, but he had to sort of sublimate that creativity in order to get a job, sort of live what we quote unquote, you know, the American dream, whatever that means, you know, the trick of what that means. And I feel like there's so much suppression of his creative spirit that oftentimes I think 
I need to be as creative and emotive and um, willing to take some risks because he could not do that because as someone who had just crossed the border, you know, he, all he was worried about was safety, security, belonging, trying to find out if he could belong. Um, and so I think when I think of the word responsibility, I don't think of it as like what I need to offer other people, but I do think of it as what I would like to do to honor my own ancestors that live within me. Um, as someone who also identifies like with a nationality outside of the U.S., um, I think it's really important that we're able to like honor ourselves and honor our own cultures in our work. And I was just wondering, do you do you ever feel more culturally grounded through your writing, or are you able to like fully express um, like what? your interpretation of your own identity and if you ever feel trapped in um, those ways, like if you're ever writing about your heritage and you feel as though you're doing something incorrect and how you might overcome or over surpass that. Oh, I think that's a wonderful question. I, I feel like that's something that happens very often in, when we sit down to write, especially if we feel like there's pressure on us and the pressure comes from two places, right? We think that the pressure is from you know, maybe uh, the the larger readership that feels like uh, we should write about our identity because our identity is what, you know, pleases this, you know, larger mass public readers. And then there's the other part that's, you know, the Latinx for me group that is like, why don't you write about this, right? So there's, we get pressure from both sides of this kind of interesting idea of like who you are. I remember being at a, at a, at a poetry reading and it was a book club, actually, uh, at a very distinguished poetry center. And um, this woman sort of picked up my book and she said, I don't I, why don't you write about your identity? It's not here. And it was fascinating to me because I thought, well, it's all over there. I mean, that I write about who I am, you know, but she I wasn't writing about this sort of Latinx experience that she was comfortable with, that she wanted to absorb. And so she thought I wasn't doing it the right way. And um, I, I it really has always stuck with me about what that means to write about your identity in the acceptable way, in the right way, um, what's getting it wrong, what's getting it right. And I think that one of the biggest things is that I really want to make sure that I give myself the grace and the freedom to be who I am in my entirety, which is also the white parts of me. It's also the Mexican parts of me. It's also, the, you know, it's, it's. It's the fact that, you know, both both Spanish and English are colonizer language. It's it's the fact that, you know, it, I don't have, I have a, a tribe in Mexico, but I don't have any, you know, connections with them. But my grandfather was um, part of the Purepecha tribe. You know, all of these things that I, I would love, um, you know, as, as I write, like those things come up, but I'm always very careful. I think, who am I writing this for? because I want to write it for me. Like I want to write to become free on the page and to really be um, my most authentic self and bring my whole self to it. I don't want to write as a way of performance or a way of offering someone an identity that feels like, oh, that's exactly what I thought. And now I feel like I can like eat it like a fruit. And, and now I'm, I'm, I'm replenished because I, I know who you are. You know, and it's like the truth is like the my fruit is is very complicated and it might not satiate you and it might burn a little and it might be sweet and it might also be disgusting and it might also like, you know, not be for you at all, you know, and so I think that there is um, a real consideration that we have to explore when when anyone is writing about their what identity, what identity means. And and a lot of that is like, who are you writing it for? Why are you writing it? And are you doing it in a way that for you feels like a truth? And that, that I come back to that all the time because I don't want to do it for somebody else, no matter who that person is, right? Even as I spoke about my beloved grandfather who's since passed, even if I'm writing something that's solely for him, that's not going to feel right to me. You know, that it also has to be for me, this person in this body, in this time. And so it's, it's an honoring that that's, uh, it's like a, you know, a 365 honoring that it has to honor everyone. Um, and, and, you know, the voice who's writing it is at the center of that. 
Um, and I think it's a wonderful question because we I don't think we talk about that enough, which is what does that look like to to write to feel like you're getting something wrong, to get something right, um, and even to fail at it. And um, I think when we fail, it's because we're not giving ourselves that full complexity, right? Instead, we're kind of leaning into our own tropes or what people expect of us to write. And so it just, it becomes very interesting, an interesting way to explore the page is to really keep interrogating and asking yourself, who am I writing this for? Why am I writing it for? And is it true? Thank you. And I was wondering how you make sure that you stay true to yourself in your writing. How do you, when you realize that this might be for someone else or that this doesn't seem true or doesn't seem as though it's saying what you wanted to say, how do you get back to that? Yeah, I think there's moments that feel, um, you can feel the shift in your body. At least for me, I can feel it when it feels like it's a performance where it feels like, oh, this is, this is something to entertain. Like I love entertaining. I, I, I love that. I think that's wonderful. Like I'm a, from a tradition of, you know, spoken word and stages and, and music and people meant to, you know, really embrace and hear poetry with their whole body and hearts. I don't mind performing, but that performance has to feel like it's duende. It's coming through the body. It's Lorca in the blood, right? It can't feel to me like, oh, I'm performing this as something digestible and easy. Um, for someone else. And I think that happens to me when I finish something and I read it out loud and I can hear my own tricks. Like if I hear it and I think, oh, that's something I do to please someone else or even me, right? Like, oh, that's something I do, but I hear myself doing it often. Um, and so I'm always sort of looking and thinking, okay, where can I, how can I go deeper in that moment and make sure that I'm not just doing that because that was the easy option. Um, and you know, not, not that it's always about pushing towards the difficult, but I'm definitely interested in pushing towards complexity. You know, when you can sort of feel like, uh, something that you've written is annotated, like an explanation, what we enjoy about it is twofold. Uh, you know, there's a sense of voyeurism. We love that. So that's what we love about your poetry. Cause we do really feel like we see you in it and it's an intimacy, like, I mean, that's why I love the first person and and even third person that feels it's like a close first person where I feel like I'm just immediately brought into this intimate world. I don't even know you're a stranger, you know, a stranger. And when you feel like this is a friend talking to me and there's a shorthand. And when I feel like that's happening, then that the magic is there. And it's just such a strange contract that we have with the reader, right? We think here I'm going to I'm going to give you all of these things that are about me and and for me in my own work. Other poets are of course different, but me as my own idiosyncratic artist, I write from me. Um, you know, I, I very rarely do I write from um, another perspective, and so I find that uh, there is that sort of intimacy that's created. But then I also have to make sure I trust it. Right, I have to trust that I'm not. Um, creating something that's intimate for the sake of making a closed space, right? And sometimes that can happen where I think, oh, I just want to write this just for myself. And I think that's wonderful. Like there are times where I think I do just want to write this for myself. And that's a beautiful thing. There's nothing wrong with creating just for the sake of making something. In fact, I think we don't do that enough, right? We don't play enough. We don't just make something and it, it, just for the sake of making. Um, but there are times, especially when I start to edit in the process of editing, where I think, okay, now if it's going to the wider world, <laughs> it might need, it might need something that opens it up a little bit. So there are times where I have to realize that, um, what is it to make a closed space in an open space? And poetry is going through an interesting moment. And I think it has been for quite a while you know, to begin with, poetry was the medium and there wasn't novels and there wasn't all these other competing forms. And then like songwriting in a way popularizes and overtook it. But I think with the internet, which is a fort which has so many, you know, platforms for brevity that poetry has this 
it's it's not like they're still okay it's still not kind of the popular medium we know that but all these kind of people are you know even writing poetry on twitter or you know finding it's like it kind of makes you think about the compression and distillation uh, so that's i don't know what your feelings are about that and and also how, how do you engage with it and, and a little bit about your teaching process what do you how, how do you work with your students yeah, um, I think that's a great question. I do think poetry is having a sort of a moment. And um, I think that one of the things I love about that is that, you know, it's making spaces for all of these amazing voices. You know, we've had, you know, just within the last two years, sort of two of the most significant um, anthologies of Native poets that we've had uh, in existence. We've also had the, um, you know, the the great, incredible uh, collection of African-American poetry edited by Kevin Young. It's, be, it's also bringing to life all of these voices that have been with us for a long time, but haven't been either in one place or haven't been collected in a way that um, can be taught. Um, and so I think, uh, I think that's really wonderful. I also think that we're trusting poetry a little bit more because we are distrusting things that always have answers and wisdom. And I think poetry doesn't have answers and it doesn't presume to have wisdom, but it does have complexity and breadth and capacity for change, for change and a sense of transformation. And it's about the human condition. And I think we are trusting the roughness of it as opposed to the smoothness of it. Um, I think that's one of the reasons people are drawn to it right now. I think when I teach, I, that's part of what I do is that I, I'm, I, I think that when people first come to the page, they really think that they need to be wise. I think they begin like, oh, I need to have a point. I need to have a, you know, what am I saying? And it has to be like, I'm going to end on this moral of the story is, you know? And I think a lot of what I do in my own uh, class is to, is to, is to talk about the, the mess. You know, there's a great quote from C.D. Wright that I always think of, which is, the goal is not to tell a story, but to experience the whole mess. And I'm much more interested in the mess than I am in the story. And um, I feel like my students will always say that I'm, I'm always talking about sound, right? That sound is part of that mess, that it's like, what are, what's the actual sound of that world that you're creating on the page um, that makes it interesting, that makes it yours, um, and then also, you know, what are the, the, what are the things that aren't the easy parts, but the parts that are complicated? Um, and I think once we lean into that complexity and lean into the mess and a little bit more into the chaos, uh, we get work that's much more interesting, much more um, human. You know, thinking about um, leaning into the mess, leaning into the complexity, you know, it's bringing us back to what your, uh, the conditional, the poem you started this conversation with about thinking about the future. And, mm. you know, how do we make sense of the complexity? It's something that's on our mind a, a lot too. You know, mm. the future, the kind of world we're leaving, the next generation, and, and in, in all of this, the importance of the arts, uh, the things in society we'd like to change. So as you think about those things, you know, what were some lessons, some teachers, some things that were important uh, for you? Uh, and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Yeah, I think I think a big thing for me was that when we're met with this time, right, with whatever time we're in, but this time in particular, that um, that hope is radical, right? And that the idea of resilience is radical and it is, and sometimes like we, we think of it as almost naive, right? What is it to feel like, oh, I'm just gonna have a nice day. <laughs> you know, how can I have a nice day when so much, you know, so many hard things are happening around the globe? Um, but I think that that I think there is a, a real point to joy. <laughs> I think there is something that we need to experience that kind of resilience and joyfulness and and um, wholeheartedness that we enter the world in because I think it's so easy to be overwhelmed by the unknowns of our future. It's so easy to be overwhelmed by what could be seen as, you know, 
the darkness that's coming, et cetera. And I think we have to be those bright lights. And if we're not, what's the point? What's the point of being here? Like we, we really need to be those bright lights. We need to be, um, so, you know, we need to offer something to someone else. And I think sometimes when we get, and this was taught to me a long time ago, which is that when I'm getting too into my own self and my own depression and to my own, you know, well of sorrow, whatever it is that sometimes we get into as artists and as sensitive beings as a- anyone, um, that to remember also that to give back um, and that I'm part of this ecosystem. <laughs> I'm part of this little bioregionalism area that I have here. Um, and that to remember that connectedness, to remember that, you know, all flourishing is mutual. And so that sometimes that just giving a little bit of lightness, a little bit of breath to myself also allows me to do that for somebody else. So kindness, you know, kindness, grace, self-love, those things are important and they sound cheesy, you know, they sound cheesy, but they're not. They're really essential to how we get by day to day and how we treat one another. And essential things and the simplicity is hard. You know, Mm -hmm. we were talking, you know, about our climate crisis and uh, just the simplicity of cleaning up our planet and you know behaving as we should towards it it's it's hard so i i wouldn't underestimate um you know the importance of kindness and um, it's it's what we need more of in our life kindness towards ourselves and to others mm-hmm. so i want to thank you ada limon for the intimacy and honesty of your poetry which invites us to better understand the truth of our own lives and the natural world with grace humor and beauty Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process and One Planet. Thank you so much. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview is conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Austin Johansson. The Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you so much for listening.